Welcome to the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast, where we invite you into a journey of healing and personal transformation that will radically change your divorce experience, heal your heart while refining your character, and set you up to be effective and feel empowered as you navigate the practical and emotional challenges of divorce. I'm your host, Karen McMahon, founder of Journey Beyond Divorce. My divorce brought me to my knees, and it also transformed me and set me on this path to help you. Our team of JBD coaches support men and women to engage in divorce with more calm, clarity, and confidence through our one-on-one coaching, group programs, online courses, and free resources. I think there's there's two main issues. There's children and then there's money. If parents can't get along well enough to agree to joint custody, then, and there's going to be a custody battle, okay? That's when litigation is going to be appropriate. So the question becomes, you know, what what is in dispute and does it make sense to ask the trial court to determine this issue rather than having the decision left in your own hands. Today is a follow-up. Last time we talked about the all of the different legal approaches to divorce in a very basic way. And today we're going to start digging into each of the individual approaches. So we're talking with a special guest today about divorcing using litigation, the benefits of working within the court system and what to expect during the litigation process. And I think there's a lot of fear around litigation, especially, and it's attached to the fact that you're going into court. So we're going to be talking about that a bunch today. And I think the other thing is litigation has a bit of a bad rap and there's a lot of uh, uh, rumors that you'll hear as you're speaking to people about how all litigating attorneys are sharks and and how, you know, you go into the litigation process and you're just going to hemorrhage money. And so today's guest is Wendy Samuelson, and she's going to kind of set the record straight and talk about uh, her experience litigating divorce. And Wendy uh, is the managing partner of uh, a boutique matrimonial and family law firm called Samuelson House and Samuelson. And they're based in Garden City, New York. And they specialize in counseling high net worth clients to make exceptional business decisions and not emotional ones on how to best resolve their divorce or child custody matter in the most strategic manner possible. And yeah, I I love Wendy. Her and I have worked together with different clients. She brings a, a collaborative spirit to the litigation process with vast experience in negotiating complex settlements. She also does something that's really important, which is that she has a deep concern for her client's emotional well-being, understanding that the most successful divorce settlements are also, also enable clients to move forward emotionally. And her approach is represented in a ton of different awards that she's received. Long Island's Cap 
10 uh, leaders in matrimonial law, uh, New York metro area's top attorney in matrimonial law, as well as uh, uh, the 10 best female attorneys in New York. So, so I just really enjoy working with Wendy and I'm excited about her sharing her experience and her wisdom and her guidance with us. Welcome, Wendy. Well, thank you so much for that lovely introduction, Karen. Thank you for having me on your show. Let's jump right in, Wendy, because we have so much to talk about, and I want people to really walk away with a good sense of what litigation means and even what the whole process looks like. So let's start uh, with the foundation. Can you give our listeners a definition of litigation in terms of divorce? Sure. I mean, my view of litigation is a broad view. It means that a judge is going to be overseeing your divorce case and making sure that certain things get done within a certain time frame. Some of those things, of course, are the financial discovery that would take place during the divorce action, which means financial documents being exchanged between the parties so that everybody has a clear understanding of what the marital assets are. So, and the, sorry, and the judge oversees this process and makes sure that everybody's complying so that at a certain point in time, you have all the information necessary to negotiate a settlement. When, when I talk to my clients about going through the courts and litigating, and correct me if I'm wrong, one of the things I say to them is that, that the court is really – in the in the early stages, it's like a scheduling police. It keeps you on track and it makes sure everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing in a reasonable time frame. Absolutely. That's how I look at it. The end goal is for the court to get you to settle this case. The court doesn't want to have a trial. <laughs> they really looking to see if parties can settle. But if you can't settle, then that date that the judge gives you for a trial will finally end this for you. Or it might make people concerned enough that they say, oh, I finally do have to settle this case. There's no more you know, time left. And it really pushes people into that corner and says, either settle this or go to trial. You know, Wendy, you had said to me once that, uh, and the percentages may be a little off, but what I remember is like 90% of cases that go through the courts never go to trial. And of the 10% that go to trial, the vast majority of those settle before a judge makes a decision. Am I, am I quoting you somewhat correctly on that? Yes. I, I mean, my own personal track record might be even a little higher in terms of negotiations of settlements, but um, I would say 10% or less go to trial. Yes. So before we jump into more about the litigation, why did you choose litigation as the approach to help people through divorce? I believe it's the best way to move cases quickly to a settlement. The first step is to make sure that the parties have full financial information. And usually people aren't motivated to 
get this information to the other side so quickly. But if a judge says, this is when it's due, people usually get it done when the judge tells you it needs to be done. So I feel that it quickens the timeline of getting the financial information, and then once you have it, to be able to try to negotiate a settlement. I also feel that judges sometimes help you settle the case because sometimes they give you an indication of what they think is fair and reasonable under the circumstances um, and even sometimes have settlement conferences with uh, both sides before the trial date's set. So it's very helpful to know where a judge's mindset is because you don't want to go to trial if you know that a judge is going to do certain things that are not in your favor. Right. And and we'll we'll get back to that a little bit later on in the process. So we have listeners um, who are tuning in and they're trying to figure out, you know, do do I mediate? Do I collaborate? Do I litigate? Can you talk a little bit about who a good candidate for litigation is and when uh, someone's better off using a different approach? Well, I think all three approaches are, are good ones. I mean, essentially, even when you're in the litigation phase, um, you're still trying to negotiate a settlement. And that's the same purpose of mediation or collaborative law is, is always this negotiation. But when you have um, parties who have very different financial interests, say, for example, you represent a husband who's a very high net worth um, individual and the wife is a stay-at-home mom, let's just give that scenario. You want to start the divorce action because that is the cutoff date of all marital assets. So it would be in my client's best interest to commence the proceedings. And from there, um, any dollar that the, the husband earns after the commencement of the divorce action will be his separate property. So that's protecting him in certain ways. So that so, if he's negotiating a settlement for six months to a year, um, you know, none of this newly acquired money will go into the marital pot. So I just want to I, I want to uh, reiterate what you're saying. I'm understanding that you're saying one of the benefits of going through the court is that when you file, when you as you're saying, commence the the uh, case, that filing actually stops the clock on marital earnings. And so if that was an issue for if you're listening and that's an issue for you to know that if you were to get a bonus or a raise or whatever would be coming afterwards, that 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 money wouldn't be shared. But if you were going through the collaborative process and perhaps or mediation and that was going to take, uh, you know, six or nine months that that the clock is still ticking. Is that how it works? Yes. Um, it depends. I mean, you could have somebody who's in mediation who agrees to a cutoff date of marital assets, but I rarely see that happening for people. But if you were dealing with a mediator, right? But if you're dealing with someone who's just, if you're dealing with a party that's not very agreeable to begin with, then that's a benefit.
you've been listening to our podcast because you know that navigating through the emotional tornado of separation and divorce is one of the hardest journeys you'll take. Once the initial fear and pain subsides, you're hit with a new storm of anger, uncertainty, and self-doubt. Listening to podcasts, reading articles, watching videos is absolutely helpful yet it can fall short of the support you need in this marathon journey through divorce. And you don't have to go it alone. We can help you get clear on where you're feeling stuck and what steps you need to move forward with practical, tangible support that you can implement right away. Our Journey Beyond Divorce team of experienced coaches is ready to help you. So listen through this episode because we have a gift for you that will help you navigate your divorce with more calm and confidence. Uh, scenarios of ideal clients? Sure. So I think there's, there's two main issues. There's children and then there's money. If parents can't get along well enough to agree to joint custody, then, and there's going to be a custody battle, okay? That's when litigation is going to be appropriate. Okay, so... Um, Custody is something that's, you know, very often, especially when two parents are at odds with each other, um, that's not going to be something that you can resolve easily. Then the only way to resolve it is to have a court decide that issue. And then there's the money issue. Um, I only recommend clients to go to trial when it will cost them less to litigate an issue that's in dispute. So the question becomes, you know, what what is in dispute and does it make sense to ask the trial court to determine this issue rather than having the decision left in your own hands? Okay. There's, so there's so many different situations when that might arise. It's not just necessarily, you know, a specific asset that you might litigate over. It might be you can't agree on financial support or you can't agree on whether or not an asset is marital or separate um, or you can't agree on certain credits that you should receive and then of course there are issues of you know there may be disputes over what a business is worth or how income is generated and whether or not all that income is being reported so it may make sense if you can prove that there's more income than um, the other side's willing to admit. You might want to take that to litigation. Right. Or I would imagine if there's a lack of transparency, if somebody's hiding funds. Exactly. If somebody's hiding something and you can prove that they're hiding a certain asset, then you may want to take that to trial. Well, again, you're saying trial, but I, I'm, I, and I, I want you to be real clear because I'm getting confused. So, so we're talking about why litigation would be good. If are you saying that if someone had that kind of a situation, they would probably end up going to trial? It really, it really depends. So, 
most people think of litigation only as the trial. But I think of it as the whole process to have the judge oversee the financial discovery. Okay? And the question always becomes at the end of the day, after you have all this information, does it make sense to litigate an issue? And the only way you can assess that is to determine how much it's going to cost for you to litigate the issue as opposed to settle it. I could see where the litigation, the the whole uh, threat, for lack of a better term, of going to trial may have its own power in getting people to the table to make some compromises and, and settle. Exactly. And then not only that, but the cost of appealing it, you have to look at. So if you don't, if you know that you're not going to win at the trial level, there's always that, you know, threat of an appeal that costs more money and more time. And, um, you know, I always point out to people, time is money. So sometimes knowing that you have something finally settled rather than wondering how many years this is going to go on through the appellate level, um, you know, might make sense for you to, to finish this case up now. And and then there's the peace of mind. Even as I'm listening to you talk, the concept of actually going through a divorce and then going back to the appellate court and doing it again is like I I can't imagine anyone wanting to do that. Right. Exactly. So great. Let's let's take a look at step by step through the process so that if you're considering litigation, if this is sounding like it's the right venue for you, the right approach for you, uh, listen up, because we're going to talk about how it begins and, and step by step what you can uh, what can you what you can expect to be experiencing along the way. So I retain you, Wendy. Then what mm-hmm. happens? OK, well, of course, we talk about strategy and information that we need, but the next step would be to serve a summons and complaint on the other spouse. And what does that mean? Okay. What that means is um, you have two options. One is that a process server could go out and serve your spouse, or the other option is to have your spouse's attorney accept service so that a process server doesn't have to show up at your home or your work and surprise you. And very often, um, my clients want that approach. They feel it's a little more amicable not to, you know, surprise somebody. So you file a summons. So your spouse uh, receives this and and knows that uh, you're going forward. Uh, right. And you're saying that that the spouse has to also hire a litigating attorney. Correct. And once the action is commenced, which means that the other spouse is served with these papers, okay, there's a temporary restraining order on assets. And that's helpful to both parties because it means that neither party can transfer or wastefully dissipate any of the marital assets. It also demands that Neither party take any loans against any assets, whether it's their retirement funds or their house. It requires that the health insurance be maintained for the spouse and that 
Uh, neither party can remove the other party's name from life insurance policies. So this actually gives a lot of protection to both parties and starts them off at a you know level playing field in the sense that you know neither party is permitted to dissipate any of the marital assets. Yeah, that does sound like a nice security, especially if you're in a high conflict or a high, um, highly complex situation. Yeah, it, could, it really could be for you, you know, whether or not it's complex or high conflict, I think it just sets down the rules for both parties that they can't just take money and, and move it. You know, they have to leave everything exactly as it was as of the date of the commencement of the divorce action. And they are, of course, allowed to spend it in the reasonable course of business and for li living expenses. Um, so it's not that it's frozen, but just basically telling both parties they can't do anything to, you know, uh, wastefully dissipate the assets. Now, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, but I, I can't help but ask this question. So let's say I wastefully dissipate some assets. What what happens? Well, you'd be in violation of a court order. And um, you could be held in contempt of court. That could be any anything from, you know, punishment, <laughs> which means jail, or it could mean paying certain fines or penalties. So, so it's pretty serious. Yeah, it's a serious consequences. Our listeners often share that they've been on the fence about leaving their difficult marriage for far too long. What about you? Are you walking on eggshells, constantly trying to make sense of your spouse's black and white thinking, revisionist history, endless blame and accusation? Have you lost your voice, your self-confidence, even your belief that a better life is available for you? Imagine for a moment entering your divorce unflustered by your spouse's recriminations, certain of your legal rights, crystal clear on your next steps, and secure in your support team. How would it be to feel guided and supported to create, practice, and implement a bulletproof plan to leave your marriage with grace and dignity? If this sounds like what you need to finally get unstuck, go to journeybeyonddivorce.com and learn more about our Get Off the Fence program. You can even book a call with a coach to ensure that this is the right program for you. Okay, so uh, so so everyone has an attorney. Uh, the the um, the complaint has been filed. The the case has been commenced. What next? So the next step is for both parties to exchange net worth statements, which is a statement that includes everything from your assets, your liabilities, expenses, and your income. And this really sets the ground for the entire case. I mean, this is all the crucial information that both parties need from each other in order to settle this case or, you know, move it forward to trial. 
Right. Because at the end of the day, divorce is all about the divvying up of parenting time and marital assets and the other financial issues of custody of a child support rather and 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 maintenance. Right. So that Correct. kind of gives you that gives you the the roadmap for what you have and what you might be able to accomplish. Right. And then after the network statements are exchanged, then the parties have the um, ability to request certain financial documents from each other. And generally, when I represent a client, I like to look for the last three years of bank statements, brokerage account statements, um, you know, any information that would verify what they have on the net worth statement. And what I'm looking for here is not only verification of what they reported on the net worth statement, but whether or not any large amounts of money was transferred outside of the accounts, whether they were to new accounts that I didn't know about or to other people that they shouldn't have transferred the money to in the first place because it was a wasteful dissipation. Um, so we're looking for, you know, making sure that the money is what's reported and also that nothing has been transferred. Got it. So you have all your documents, you've got that so, paperwork in. Right. And then during that period of time, you can also request a preliminary conference with the court. You're supposed to do that within the first 90 days of starting the action. And what that means is that a judge is assigned to your case, and this judge oversees the entire process from start to finish. They're overseeing the calendaring of when all financial discovery is complete, and they will also be your trial judge. So okay. you want me to tell you a little bit about what happens at the preliminary conference? I think it's really important. Uh, I think this is where... I know this is where clients get really fearful because they're for the first time they're quote unquote going to court and there's a lot of scenarios that people have in their head that are really far from the truth and reality. So can you be real specific about what that that day of uh, the preliminary conference looks like? Sure. So the conference itself lasts about 15 minutes to 30 minutes, <laughs> okay? When you get into the courtroom, the parties actually stay in the courtroom and the attorneys meet with the judge or the judge's law secretary, which is another attorney who's the judge's right hand, basically, um, who's helping the judge out in this way. And they want to know, what is this case about? Is custody an issue? Because they're... The court's so concerned about children, they want to make sure that is custody resolved or do we need have a custody battle? And if, if we do, do we need an attorney for the children appointed? Do we need forensic um, psychologist appointed to interview the parties? You know, what can we do to help move this issue along? So that's the first thing that they're going to explore. They also want to know, what is involved? What are the ages of the parties, the length of the marriage, the ages of the children, um, you know, and some of the assets that we're talking about? They want to know what financial discovery needs to take place. For example, if somebody's a business owner, then they're going to want to appoint a forensic accountant to value the business or 
a professional practice. So that's another issue that they're looking at. Um, there may be some real estate that needs to be appraised. So the court's going to want to help the parties appoint an appraiser for the real estate. So they go through all of these issues. Meanwhile, the parties are just sitting in the courtroom, literally reading a newspaper or doing something to pass the time. And after this conference is done, the judge will have dates when you have to serve your demands for financial discovery, when depositions have to take place, and it's status conference date. When you're going to come back and report that all of this was done. After that's over, the judge will come out on the bench, say hello to the parties, and basically tell them that they should get along for the sake of their children, and they should listen to their attorneys and try to settle the case. And that's pretty much the conference right there. So that's really the kickoff of the case in some ways in the court, because the court's getting that broad stroke picture of what's going on. And now do you get down to the business of negotiating? Well, like I said, you need to have full financial information. So you can't negotiate till you have all the facts. And it really depends on what you're dealing with. If both parties are fully knowledgeable and have always seen each other's bank accounts and brokerage accounts and know the money that's been going in and out of accounts throughout the marriage, it makes things a lot easier because they have a full financial picture from the get-go. But if they were in the dark about each other's, you know, dealings, then it makes the issue more complex in the sense that we first need to have the financial discovery before we can start entering into negotiations. And the financial discovery, is that what you were saying about like three years of uh, account information and statements and that kind of thing? Exactly. You want all the, the past tax returns. You need to find out the in the income is important for uh, figuring out how much child support or spousal support will be paid. And then the assets and liabilities have to do with how, you know, what's marital versus what's separate and how are those assets going to be divided. Got it. If you have a situation where, uh, where you have parties or bringing stuff to the table or they're familiar already. So let's say you have that information, you've gathered it. And I could see where somebody was digging their heels in or not being transparent that, that the financial discovery process could actually drag things out a little bit, couldn't it? Yeah, it really depends. You know, I always tell my clients, the more forthcoming you are, the quicker you're going to get this done. But sometimes, you know, it's, it's not about the transparency. It's just that there's a lot of misconceptions. Um, for example, I just took a deposition um, last week where my client thought that her husband had all these other accounts. Um, but it turns out that they weren't accounts of his. They were accounts of the mother. <laughs> so, you know, and he was able to present proof of all of this. So then she finally understood that he didn't have maybe as m many assets as maybe she thought. So it was helpful to take this deposition, have him answer these questions under oath so that she would not, you know, continue to, 
you know, think that certain things existed that didn't. Gotcha. Good example. Mm-hmm. So, so what, what's the next step once you have all of your financial discovery? So then you have your, your status conference with the judge and you say, judge, everything is complete. And he says, okay, are you ready to certify this case ready for trial? And, of course, if all discovery is complete, you say yes. And the judge usually gives you a trial date three months out. And that's when that the parties are really pushed to settle the case because they're either going to settle it or they're going to go to trial in three months. So you haven't even discussed negotiating, and yet you're saying you're going into a status conference and talking about trial, and yet 90% of cases don't go to trial. So I'm getting a little confused. Can you clarify that for us? Sure. So... After all financial discovery is completed, that's when you have the negotiations. And it's usually around the same time that the status conference is happening. Um, And when the court says, okay, you have three months, make a decision whether or not you're going to settle this or not, that's when people start really negotiating and say, okay, let's sit down and figure this all out. And, you know, here's what I'm offering, you know, and have discussions about their offers and see if they can settle it. And usually the the court has um, a pretrial conference as well, which is the very last ditch effort where the judge says, okay, where are you guys at? How can I help you settle this? So the court's desire is to settle and and not bring all these people before the judge for trial. Can you talk a little bit uh, about uh, how, as a litigating attorney, you negotiate? Because, again, the listeners are going to be hearing from a collaborative attorney, hearing from a mediating attorney. So what does the actual negotiation look like? Is Is it over the phone? Is it via email? Is it sitting down with all the parties? How does that work? All three. Um, What I generally like to do is draw up a memo, an outline of terms, and show the other side, here's what I'm looking for, and here's why I'm asking, what I'm asking for is reasonable. I usually point out, um, for example, for talking about support, why this makes sense show a cash flow analysis, meaning, okay, if I'm representing the wife and I'm asking for the supports, assume that the wife is the stay-at-home mom and the husband, you know, is is the breadwinner, um, I would show, okay, here's what her expenses are. Here's how much she needs to live. Even if she went out and got a job, this is all she could probably earn. And here's the remainder of what needs to be paid. Um, and so I started sort of that analysis and I also show the other side, say, if you pay this amount of money, here's what you're going to have left at the end of the day. So I have to look at it from both sides in order that this is a win-win for both, both sides. Otherwise, you know, you're never going to have a successful negotiation. Um, so I basically draft everything out in memo form. I discuss it with my client first. Um, and I send it to the other side and then they usually respond by letter. And if we're close enough, I say, now it makes sense for us to sit down at a four-way conference and discuss the issues, um, and sort of find out why they're asking for certain things to have clarity around it and have my client hear those things and vice versa. 
and see if there are other ways that maybe we could resolve certain issues that um, nobody's ever thought about. So, um, so it's really a combination of, of both things. We do it by, you know, by email and then by, you know, being in the room together. Also, I think it's helpful because when you're in a room together, the other lawyer may or may not be advising their client properly. And so I tell the other side what my legal position is, what case law I'm relying on or what I believe from my own experience doing this for 22 years, you know, what a judge would do, or this particular judge. Let them hear, hear it because maybe they're not hearing it from their own lawyer. And do you find uh, situations where you hear the name of the other attorney that you're up against and uh, and they have a reputation for, uh, you know, being a shark or being a really hard nosed or, you know, does that does that happen? And and how does that negotiating face to face help? So, yeah, it's it's interesting because I had one attorney who I found find to be very unreasonable. I had a case with him and, you know, he takes unreasonable positions and basically sells his client down a river, you know, of let's just go to court. And he actually purposely tried to keep his client out of any four-way conference (laughs) because he didn't want his client to hear what I had to say. Um, so that's sort of, sort of an interesting uh, predicament. And those cases, you know, you can't, um, there's only so much you can do. It takes two people to settle. And if somebody's going to be that unreasonable, you have no other choice but to finish it by and trial. I, and I hear you saying that it it might be the spouse who's unreasonable, but it might also be that the spouse chose to hire a shark, uh, and and that it's the attorney that's as, if not more, unreasonable. Right. You know, so it really it really depends. You know, I find I find that um, you know elephants don't marry giraffes, and yeah. people are going to find the lawyers <laughs> that are most like them in a lot of ways. So. You know, you do your best. If you can't get in front of the other person, then send letters, because usually the the lawyer has to show that letter to the to their clients. So, you know, you point out why the other side is just going to be on the losing end of the stick if they continue in this path, or how much money they're going to have to spend. At the end of the day, it comes down to you know how much you're going to have to pay in legal fees, and you know, does it is that worth it? And, you know, you really want to make a business decision about things and not, you know, think you're going to air all your dirty laundry out in court because, you know, the judge doesn't care about those types of things or, you know, why you're getting a divorce. The judge only wants to help you, you know, finish up the financial issues. So... Could you speak a little bit to, I've had a number of clients who were, you know, the primary earner and maybe there was even, you know, infidelity on the other side. So there was, there was this whole issue of, you know, he or she doesn't deserve anything for this reason. And, and yet the concept behind, um, the, the spousal support, uh, can you just explain how that, let's assume there's kids involved, how that 
the reason behind it and how it impacts uh, the children's uh, lifestyle in the two different households and why why it plays into that? Well, I think, you know, people always ask me, does infidelity have any relevance to this action? And for the most part, no. Um, the court is not going to give one spouse more money because the other spouse had an affair, whether more money in the sense of, you know, financial support or more money in the sense of the equitable distribution of the marital assets. It does not come into play in that way. The only way infidelity comes into play is if the spouse spent money on the paramour. And that's considered a wasteful dissipation of marital assets. So say, for example, you could prove that uh, he spent $30,000 on his girlfriend. Um, Half of that money has to be paid back uh, to the wife. Oh, okay. So um, that's really the only time it comes into play. The problem is that clients get so emotional about the affair, and that's all they can focus on and how they just want to get back at the other spouse. And I tell people that, you know, my job is not to get back at your spouse. My job is just to get both of you into two separate homes where you can both afford to live in those two separate homes. Um, And so people have to realize that, you know, if they have an ax to grind, they need to sort of maybe, you know, speak to their psychologist and, and, you know, find other healthier ways. But, it you know, to bring it into play in the divorce action really is not helpful to them. Right. And I think that so often people think court equals justice. If I'm going to divorce court, I'm going to get justice because he or she had an affair or stole money or whatever it is that they did that was so hurtful. And that what I hear you saying is that's just like that's a hemorrhaging of money, that that's not what the divorce court is there for. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, there was one judge that I was in front of many years ago who said to me, you two better settle this case because if I'm your judge, I'll give the fish tank to one spouse and the fish to the other. (laughs) (laughs) So the, the bottom line is you have more choices and flexibility if you craft your own settlement than if you have a judge simply decide the issues. There's Which a lot is what more happens. you can put into a negotiated agreement and a lot more protection that you could craft than what a judge might do. So a yeah. lot of people think that, oh, you know, a judge is going to care about my case. But you know what? They've heard too many cases. And um, I don't want to say they don't care, but to some extent, you know, they're not thinking of your case the way you're thinking about your case. So, you know, they just see you as another case on the docket, whereas you think this judge is going to, you know, buy into all the horrible things that happened during your divorce or, you know, during your marriage, rather, that led to the divorce. And they're, they're really not interested in that. So you negotiate and nine times out of 10 before you go to trial, uh, there's a settlement that's reached. And then 
let's say that that we agree to everything and we sign on the dotted line. Isn't there a time frame within which the divorce isn't actually official? Yeah. So after the agreement signed, then you have to submit judgment of divorce papers. So neither party has to appear in court for any of this if you've, you know, signed an agreement. Um, once the papers go in, uh, depending on which county you're in, would tell you about how long it's going to take for those papers to be signed. Unfortunately, there's a, a big backlog in the system. So in Nassau County, for example, you could wait three to six months before the judgment's actually signed. Um, however, your agreement takes effect the day you sign it. So whatever you agree to is in full force and effect. Um, you just can't get remarried until after that judgment of divorce is signed. Well, thanks for that clarity, because I think I've, I've had a number of clients who thought, now I'm not divorced for another X number of months. And I, I had said the same thing, that no, my understanding is it, it's official, you signed it, you just don't have that final document. And I was not aware of the marriage thing. And you can't go ahead and get married until you get that the signed, sealed and delivered document back. Right. And in fact, if you um, if you're not if the judge doesn't sign your divorce papers before the end of the year, then legally you could, you know, file married filing jointly on your tax returns um, because you're not officially divorced until that degree is signed by the judge. Right. Legally. Okay. Great. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this has been really helpful. Uh, is, is there anything that I want to talk a little bit about how to pick the right attorney, but before we dive into that, is there anything that I missed Wendy that you want to touch on in terms of the process? No, I think, I think, you know, we went through the, the whole process. I think a lot of people have a lot of fear around that first court conference because they don't know what to expect. Um, but I view it as a positive thing to move the case along, whereas a lot of clients, you know, are fearful that, you know, something is going to happen in court. But really, you know, it's just to advise the judge about the case and how to move it along. Yeah, so that's great to know that if you're going to litigate uh, when your attorney says, OK, you know, we've scheduled the preliminary conference and it's coming up that, you know, that they're simply going in to update the court on everything, where you're at, what you agree on, what you don't agree on so that you can get things moving forward and that there's there's no danger in a preliminary conference. Right. So then let's talk for a few minutes, because I think that uh, I think litigation has a bit of a, a, a bad reputation. And and I certainly have heard so many people who are just stepping into divorce, fearful, be really, really fearful that every every attorney that litigates is a shark and they're just out for their, you know, to fill their own pockets and and they're untrustworthy and all of this. And, you know, I've certainly experienced quite the opposite. It, not only with you, Wendy, with but but with a lot of the attorneys that we refer. But can you talk a little bit about uh, what you would suggest when someone's shopping for the right litigating attorney? What are some of the, the things that they want to look for, some of the questions that they want to ask? I think, you know, getting a referral from a friend or a colleague or a family member is really important. Because you want to have an attorney with a good reputation and who's a good trial attorney. 
So first step, try to get a referral. And then also when you meet with the attorneys, you need to have a good rapport with them. I often find sometimes people say, I I want somebody that's just like my spouse (laughs) because they'll understand them better. But I think what you really should be picking is somebody who um, is on your wavelength because this is a relationship you're going to have generally from, you know, uh, the average case takes a year to finalize. So you want to have a good rapport with the attorney and you want to trust that the attorney is going to be giving you um, good information, good advice, and explaining to you every step of the way, you know, why are you going to trial? You know, does it make sense to go to trial? And so I think somebody who explains all of that to you at the initial consult, um, you know, is probably somebody that you would want to hire. You know, it's real important. I think, you know, your attorney should have at least 15 years of experience um, because for the most part, you know, lawyers, matrimonial lawyers, don't go to trial all the time. So you can also read the reported cases that the attorneys took to trial and see how they did. Because if a trial if a trial attorney is always on the losing end of the stick, <laughs> you might realize that you know they're not giving good advice to their clients. They're not telling them what's reasonable to expect under the circumstances, and then they're just leading you down this path of of going to trial just for the fight when the you know it's a losing fight. So you know I think that's important to know. Also, as I listen to you, that whole concept of or is the attorney um, collaboratively oriented? You know, are they talking about their desire to negotiate, their desire to, you know, make this easy on the family and the kids for it to be as reasonably fair on both sides as is possible? And And the other thing is, if you have questions, write down all your questions and come with them. And if you don't understand the first time that they say it and you ask again, are you, you know, are you being given the time that you need, the patience that you need from that person as you, as you step into this? Because as, as I remember, and I see so many of my clients, you're, you're very emotionally overwhelmed. You're feeling a little ADD uh, and it's really hard to absorb all of this. And so you really want to have a, a, a gentle and compassionate person who's, who's a good litigator who's a good negotiator but who also is going to be someone that you feel comfortable uh with for the year or more that you're with them yeah i mean uh, you have to be able to ask questions and feel comfortable asking the questions because i know that the, the clients who come in for consults with me they're you know pretty much numb when they come in yeah. and a lot of times they have no idea what was said at that first meeting. And so oftentimes what I do is send a follow-up memo saying, here's what we discussed <laughs> because I want, you know, I know that it's, it's sometimes it's in one ear at the other because they're just so emotional that first time they're in. Absolutely. So, you know, I think that's a good sign. You know, it's an attorney who follows up on what they said or follows up with you with phone calls. Um, that's probably somebody you're going to want to work with. 
And the other thing I would suggest on that inter the interviewing or certainly once you hire someone is uh, I, I tell every client bring someone with you, someone who has your list of questions so that they're all answered in a second set of ears so that so that you can actually, you know, talk to that friend or family member afterwards, because like Wendy said, it's you could feel very quickly that you've hit saturation and the attorney still has a lot more to tell you. And so to make sure that that you um, you have some support in in walking away with all that information. I, I think it's a good idea. I think I just want the listeners to understand that if somebody else is in the room besides the attorney and the client, that does breach their confidentiality. Um, so I always tell clients, it's fine that you have somebody here, but anything that you tell me is no longer confidential. And if there's a time when you need, you know, that person to step out of the room because, you know, something is about to be said that you want strictly confidential, um, you need to let me know before you start to say it. So just something to keep in mind. That's a great point. Thank you, Wendy. Mm -hmm. So, Wendy, this is so helpful. Um, I, I'm, I would love for you to share with our listeners uh, how they could reach out to you. Wendy, again, is in Nassau County uh, on Long Island, but you also uh, work in the city, right? So we, uh, we help clients in Nassau, Suffolk, Queens, and Manhattan. Okay. And um, you can reach us at our website at www.samuelsonhouse, which is spelled H-A-U-S-E, dot net. Um, and you can find out more information about us or give us a call at 516-294-6666. And I'd be happy to answer any questions you may have if you give me a call. And please let me know that you heard about this um radio program so that I know that uh, you were listening in because it's nice to know we have some listeners, right, Karen? Absolutely. And if you have any, if you're struggling at this point and you're just feeling a lot of emotional overwhelm, if you're feeling doubt and uncertainty and you just don't even know if you're ready yet, uh, that's where a Journey Beyond Divorce can come in and you can you can engage in coaching and get crystal clear on uh, on what you want, on what's keeping you stuck, on what the best, best approach is for you to go forward. A lot of times in these early stages, uh, I hear from people where their spouse or their friend or their family members is telling them what's going to happen and what they're getting or what they're not getting. And I always say, you know, don't listen to that. Everyone has their opinion. Only the experts, only the attorneys can tell you what's real. And by talking to a divorce coach, you can really uh, get clear on on what your fears are, what your obstacles are, and what your desires are, and begin to move through the process with a lot more calm. And I think as Wendy would agree, when she's working with a client who's level-headed and reasonable, uh, the process goes more smoothly, they save more money, and the settlement ends up being uh, better for everyone at the end. Absolutely. So if you're interested, journeybeyonddivorce.com, uh, we also have our 12-step divorce recovery podcast series, which, uh, which you, can, you can listen into and um, uh, 
and receive more information through that as well. So reach out if you're interested and we will be back next talking to an attorney who specializes in collaboration. Thanks for joining us on the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast. I hope you found guidance and encouragement to help you along your journey. If you like my podcast, please take a minute to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. You can also visit us at jbddivorcesupport.com, where our team of coaches support both men and women through our one-on-one coaching, group programs, online courses, and free resources. Stay tuned for our next episode, and I'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to our podcast, Getting Educated, Regulating Your Emotional Reactions, and it's been really helpful. Yet you know you could do better, be better, and you're wanting and needing more support. That's where our coaching service is a game changer. We're here for you when you need us the most, ensuring you have all the tools and resources at your fingertips, guiding and supporting you to be more effective. Our free rapid relief call helps you gain a broader perspective, commit to your best next steps, and determine what coaching support is right for you. Visit rapidreliefcall.com to book your call today.